We're all looking for good news these days, right? And all you have to do is turn on your TV and go to CNN and Fox and you find all the good news you want, right? No. Um, and, uh, and, and yet, we Christians have the best news of all. First, we have the best news because it has been verified by years of prophecies fulfilled, years of lives transformed, years of unmatched historicity, and mountains and mountains of proof that Jesus of Nazareth was born of a virgin, crucified for the sins of the world, and rose from the dead in order to set humanity free from the curse of sin and death. That's just the first reason we have the best news of all. And second, because of what the what, um, because of the news of the deeply gripping and wonderfully coherent future that Christianity presents. And we're going to dive into a little bit of that today. We're going to dive into a little bit of that at our Christmas Eve service. Um, but there's something about the promise of what's to come in Christianity that is very different than all the other promises. It's deeply, deeply coherent with the reality of humanity's pain. It doesn't just wave a magic wand over it. It doesn't just talk about an escape from it all. And sometimes we can fall into thinking that, but that's not what the gospel presents. That's not the good news. It's way deeper than that, way more wonderful than that. And so we're going to dive into some of that today as we talk about the first advent, as Jesus came, also knowing that Jesus promised to come again. Um, So since we spent five and a half months looking at the Apostle John's account of Jesus' life in the flesh, I thought it'd be good to look at another one of John's writings where he helps us see Jesus in a whole other light, the book called Revelation. So let's read, um, basically, another depiction of the Christmas story um, from John in his apocalyptic book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. So far, so good. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Sounds awesome. She was pregnant and crying out in pain, and she was about to give birth. So Christmassy, right? This is awesome. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of, that, of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Um, yeah, it took a little turn there. Um, but verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Okay, so uh, it's a little bit more Christmassy, not much. Um, Then verse 7, it says, Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now has come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. 
Again, starting to sound like good news, starting to sound pretty positive. Here is uh, the book of Revelation, who's kind of like trying to give us this insight. Now, John, as he was writing this, was living at a time where, um, where, the, where the world that he lived in was, was um, not very wholesome. It was not right. Roman uh, um, oppression, Roman domination, Roman leadership had become absolutely horrific in many different ways. Um, the persecution that had come to the Jews and to the Christians was prolific. Um, many were being killed. And, uh, and it, was a really, it was a really dark time, a really twisted time in a lot of ways. Um, and so John is writing to encourage other believers. He's writing to encourage Christians, um, but he's not using, you know, kind of promises like, hey, it's going to be all right. Because many of them were being killed. In, in horrific ways. He wasn't writing them to just say, you know, keep on singing, keep on praying, and, and the Lord will keep you from all pain and agony because that wasn't what was taking place at all. So what he was writing to them was trying to help them see a little bit bigger, broader picture um, of what God, what God could do, what God was willing to do. There's a guy um, named Michael Kruger, and I like the way he wrote a little bit about eschatology. Um, eschatology is just basically the study of final things, and uh, we can pop that quote up now, but he says, Christian eschatology recognizes that there is currently something very wrong with the world. It is a place that is filled with sadness, cursed by sin, groaning as it awaits its redemption. And in the final consummation, those sad things will be made untrue. The curse will be rolled back. The world will be changed. Eschatology is not so much about millennial positions or the structure of revelation, but is primarily about how one deals with the sad things in the world. And the Christian worldview, I believe, has a compelling and coherent eschatology. It can explain why the world is the way it is, the fall. It can provide a definition of evil, violation of God's law, and it can provide a real hope for the future. God will destroy evil and set all things right. For this reason, eschatology is not a topic that we should reserve for theologians or scholars. It is a topic for every Christian, and for that matter, every person. We all live in a dark world, and there is no message more relevant to those living in a dark world than a message about how that world will one day be changed. And so when we have this book of Revelation, I know we're reading this, and, and even me, I mean, I spent a lot of time just trying to say, okay, Revelation chapter 12, where does this happen in the timeline of eschatology? How does this fit in with everything? Is this really a depiction of what was taking place on, in Bethlehem that night? Is it much broader than that? Is it actually this kind of second thing that will happen later on? What is going on? And again, all of that can be a fun study, but ultimately what John is trying to do is he's trying to remind us that God is in control and that the devil is at work and yet God can thwart the plans of the devil. And we'll get into some more of this, but actually in this time what he's saying here is now has come the salvation, the power, the kingdom of God, and the authority of Christ because the accuser of the brethren has been hurled down. And there's going to be this time where there's kind of this, this, this rising of evil, but it will always be followed with the mercy and, and, and um, victory of Christ. The rising of evil, anytime it comes, will always be overcome by the authority and power and glory of Christ. And you kind of see this in Revelation, these ebbs and these flows going on. But one thing that we need to see here in verse 11 is how 
they overcame him. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And so this is really good news about God dealing with unrighteousness. It's really good news about about the salvation of the Lord coming. But for the people of God, the way that they overcome all of these things is through the blood of the Lamb, which we sing about at this point as a beautiful, wonderful thing. But at first, it was a cross, and it was wounds, and it was pain, and it was agony. And then they share their testimony, the word of their testimony, which is basically how God has shown up and helped them overcome things in their lives. So even in there, you have the pain of the way things were and the joy of the way things are. And on this side, you can have that joy and rejoice, but on that side, it just feels a lot like pain and things are wrong. And they did not love their lives so much to shrink from death. Basically, these were people that sought the Lord not for their comfort and ease, but they sought the Lord for his glory and the salvation of the people around them. And I was very nervous as I was studying this week because I ultimately realized that the message I'm going to share today, it it probably is not going to be well received for people who are seeking the Lord for comfort and ease. And I'm a little nervous sometimes being an American and knowing my own heart and living among Americans and knowing their hearts, that sometimes our whole Christianity is just about seeking the Lord for comfort and ease. And if that's what we stick with, Christianity is going to be very disappointing for us. And even more so, Jesus is going to be very disappointing. But if we're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, if we're seeking the Lord for his glory and the salvation of the world around us, Christianity will will be very fulfilling. And therefore, verse 12, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time's time and a half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then it goes on to talk a little bit more about the dragon. And uh, we'll get to maybe some of that in the weeks to come, but, but basically what I want to see here is that there is a lot of good news in this depiction um, from Revelation chapter 12. And the three things that I want us to draw out here, we're going to spend our time on these things, is the devil cannot thwart the plans of God concerning you. The devil is at work. He is an adversary. The word Satan means adversary. The word devil means accuser. All the accusation and all the the adverse things you experience in your life, the devil is at work in the world. He was at work in Jesus' day, even even calling himself the God of this world who could give all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. He, He said in this to lead the whole world astray. And you can see the works of the devil everywhere 
in these days. The deception, the pride, the evil, the injustice. The devil has great influence in the world today. However, no matter how great his influence, God has a way. He always provides a way of escape. And here you see in there, the, dag- the dragon de- tries to destroy the baby, but fails. He tries to destroy heaven, but fails. He tries to destroy the woman, but fails. He tries to destroy the woman's offspring, but if you read ahead, <laughs> beyond this chapter, this doesn't work either. And when we apply this to where this could be speaking of Jesus' birth there in Bethlehem, we can see the devil tried to get Jesus to be killed by influencing Herod as he did a massacre of all the two-year-old baby boys and yet failed. And then he meets Jesus in that wilderness to try and tempt him after he hasn't eaten for 40 days, tries to influence him. And yet he fails. And then there on that cross, he influences the Romans. He influences the Jews. And they turn against the Savior of the world, and they have him crucified, thinking to get rid of him forever. But even that failed. And if Jesus went through that kind of difficulty, if he went through that kind of hatred, if he went kind of that, that, that kind of adversarial reality, we have to know that that's gonna be us too who follow after him. But we can take heart, we can rejoice in the good news that just like all the times in the past, nothing is gonna change, that no weapon formed against you shall prosper in the name of Jesus. This is very good news for us, especially as we see evil seem to be on the rise and the confusion and the deceit. And people, instead of in moments like this turning to the Lord, they turn further into humanistic ideologies. We can rejoice. Like 2 Peter 2.9 says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The second thing that is really good news in here is Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. So here when it says about this man-child that was born, that she gave birth to a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Um, This kind of harkens back to that first time where there was a woman in a garden, and then there appeared a serpent in that garden, and there was this interaction, right? Just like there was here. It's kind of this, John is is basically, I heard this, from Dan Ricky, who was talking about how in, in Revelation, John is basically using the colors of the Old Testament to paint this apocalyptic prophecy. And so you have this stuff woven in so much. And, and here you have the same thing. But in that, in that moment, once again, there was this curse that was laid upon humanity. But even in that curse, God said to the woman that your offspring is going to bru- was going to crush the head of the serpent. And here in this, there's this promise that the one who is born is going to rule with an iron scepter. And the the picture of that iron scepter is basically the idea that this one will rule forever. That iron is something that can't be destroyed. That iron is something that can't be challenged. Ultimate authority, everlasting authority. And it's gonna be so refreshing when Jesus finally, you know, takes command of everything 
and crushes the serpent head and becomes that unbreakable, everlasting king. Not a king who will die someday or be defeated. Not a king who can be bribed or corrupted or deceived. But an everlasting king. And I love this. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Because sometimes we think that there's this rivalry between God and Satan going on. It's like, who's really going to win? You know? What's, what's really going to happen? But there's no rivalry between God and Satan. Satan is a created being, and God is eternal, unlimited, sovereign over everything. And so in, in, in 2 Thessalonians, we're, we're told that when Jesus does appear, when he returns, he's going to destroy the lawless one. He's going to destroy all evil with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. And again, I just think about Kung Fu Panda every time. Anybody who's seen that? He just, he fights so many battles with just his majesty. It's just like, bing, and everybody's done. But it's true, when Jesus shows up, it's not gonna be a battle. It's just gonna be over. It's just gonna be over. So we can rejoice in the good news that Jesus Christ has conquered everything and can never be conquered. It's just a matter of timing. And then the last thing that we really can see in here, and this is a little deeper, it's gonna take a little bit of brain work for 8 a.m. service. <laughs> um, but where sin and evil abound, God's grace and goodness abound much more. And this is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures and especially in the book of Revelation. That when you see evil on the rise, you shouldn't be afraid. In fact, when you see a lot of evil, don't think evil is winning. Just remember the devil is raging because his days are numbered. When you see a lot of evil, don't think evil is winning, but know God is purging the world of all unrighteousness. He's waking up the nation Israel. He's shaking up the heathen so they can know him. And he's making up a kingdom of priests out of those who follow Jesus. And when you see a lot of evil, don't think evil is winning, but rejoice because God can turn evil into something really good. If God can undo death, what else is he planning to undo? If God can make something beautiful and triumphant out of a cross, what beauty and triumph will he make out of my pains and agony? This is where our minds are supposed to go as believers. When sin and evil abound, we can know that grace is on the verge of abounding much more. And I think about this with my daughter, Bella. I remember this moment in her life where you know, she was learning how to swim. And my daughter, Bella, if you don't know, she has really no feeling and function from her knees down. She has something called spina bifida, and, and so she's in a wheelchair, can't walk. She can't do a lot of things. Um, and so when she was first learning to swim, um, she just thought this was something she couldn't do. And, uh, and then little by little, she was learning more and more and more and more, and then she could swim. And it was just so funny to see this kind of trigger happen in her mind where all of a sudden she was like, if, if this thing I couldn't do is something I can do, then what else out there can't I do that I actually can do? And it was just this moment of just like confidence. It was just this shift that happened in her little heart. And all of a sudden the world wasn't full of, you know, so much doom and dread and disappointment. 
But now it was just full of stuff that I just need to overcome. It was a massive shift in her little heart and mind. And I've seen her overcome so many other things now. And I think that's a little bit of what John is trying to get through to us in this. Because it's very easy to see the evil. It's very easy to get overwhelmed and think, how are we going to see any good change out there in our world, in our government, in our society, and then if we're honest, right here in our own hearts and souls? But then that's where we look at Jesus and we look at his life. And we look at, that, at what he's done and what he can do. And then we look at the others around us or in the scriptures or even around us today and we start to see what God can do. We think, well, if he could do it there, maybe just maybe he could do it right here. And that's the hope that's supposed to give rise. That's the good news of the gospel. That where sin and evil abound, God is not turning away. He's not saying, forget it. He's actually making a plan to show and reveal that his grace can abound much more. And so there's this illustration I want to share with you guys that's been helpful for me in unpacking this, um, this concept. Um, I've said things like, um, everything sad will come untrue. Um, which is a quote from Lord of the Rings, and uh, it's a nice thought about everything sad coming untrue, and, and I do believe that the gospel declares that in a lot of ways, but there's only one little problem with that, and it's funny, my wife was telling me, she's like, I don't like when you say that, and I was like, I say it all the time, why didn't you tell me that earlier? Um, but the whole idea of, of coming untrue, and I do think you give us enough time on the other side that we really won't even remember the really hor- horrible things that happened to us here. So in that sense, yes. But, but what the gospel does is it's not trying to just make those things untrue. So here's the illustration. I, I heard a pastor talk about this stool that he had. And it was kind of like a family heir, heirloom, this wooden stool they had. And, and it was a special thing. And he put it in this special place in his house. And he came one, home one day and his son um, had taken nails and nailed it into the stool. A whole bunch of nails into the stool, and he and he was you know upset about it, and and when the kids saw how upset he was and realized what he had done, this kid was you know crying, and so he took the kid and he said, "It's okay, it's okay. We can we can pull the nails out. We can pull the nails out." And 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 it was like him trying to say that you know here's pulling the nails out, and what he was using this illustration as was to say you can pull the nails out, but the scars of sin still remain. And, and though that is absolutely true, what you sow you will reap, um, I've always just kind of played with this analogy in, in all of my theological thinking and just said, okay, so God, what is the good news of the gospel? Is it just that you can remove nails and then, and then we're left with the consequences the rest of our life, staring us in the face? Or is, is your gospel, is your forgiveness so deep that it actually pulls out the nails and in time removes the scars. Is that what your gospel is trying to say? And I think in some ways there is some of that. There is healing, there is recovery, but, but even then I think that's still way too cheap of an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because ultimately what God does is is different, and we see this in the life of Christ. Jesus was pierced like that stool was. And Jesus, when he rose from the dead, 
He was the first fruits of this new creation. He was now in this glorified state. We talked about it last week, maybe, a couple weeks ago. We talked about, oh, resurrection. We talked about it two weeks ago with resurrection. Jesus rose and he was glorified. His body wasn't in the tomb, so somehow his, his glorification in, incorporated his body, but it was something different, obviously, because they couldn't quite recognize him, but then they could recognize him. But if you remember, he still had the scars. He still had the scars. So, so the glorification, the resurrection life that he entered into wasn't something where all the scars were gone, but those scars no longer represented what they used to represent. When he was given those scars, it represented pain and agony and sin because he died for our sin and evil because he was crucified as an innocent person. That's what they represented. But in this glorified situation, now what those things represented was the new covenant. They represented how much God really loves us. We sing about those scars. We sing about the cross now, not in the, in the same way that we would have back then. We sing about it as this beautiful thing, as this meaningful thing, as this demonstration of God's love. Those scars were redeemed. And not only that, but those scars actually meant something very, very significant to Thomas, who was locked up in fear and doubt and confusion. And those scars, instead of getting rid of those scars, those scars became a useful thing to help Thomas finally get free and to get forward in his relationship with God. And then in Revelation, time and time again, when we see Jesus, we see him as the lamb that was slain. Somehow the most horrific moment in human history, the most evil injustice that was ever done is the way that we see Jesus in the end. And I think the reason for that is because when we see Jesus and we see those scars, we're never gonna have to wonder where we stand with him. But those scars are actually gonna become the most important sign in all of heaven that we belong, that we are welcome. It's like whenever my wife sees my ring or I see the ring on her finger, I know where we stand. And this has applied into my life a number of times when, whenever someone comes and asks me to meet with them because they're dealing with suicidal thoughts or they have a loved one that is. And you would think that's a little weird except for that I'm a pastor, but that's not why they're asking me because I'm a pastor because I seem so wise. They're asking me because my dad took his life when I was 20 years old. And in those moments, it's so interesting to sit before someone and they're like, hey, could you relive all your pain for me? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah. And they, they're not asking that. They don't really know what they're asking. They're just hurting and they're saying, hey, I could use some help. And I remember I always have this conversation with the Lord. I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to like, you know, kind of like pull the scab off and start bleeding again. But Jesus just asked me if I will. And I see the scars on his hands and I say, I'm happy to, Jesus. And so Jesus takes those scars, those things that are so horrific, 
and he actually can turn them into something so meaningful and helpful for the people around us. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not some magic wand that just kind of erases. No, it's way deeper than that. It's a deeper magic from the dawn of time, as C.S. Lewis would say. And if you will give your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to Jesus, and you will let him work day after day, month after month, year after year, he will remove the things, remove the sin that is causing all of the pain. He will bring healing to what needs healing. But even better than all of that, he will use your scars. He will use your hurts to bring him glory, which is what we were made to do, and to help others know his love which will change there forever. That's the power of the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came into this world. Not just to give us a nice Christmas story, but to defeat the dragon, to break the curse, and make it possible for us to be glorified forevermore. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that it's just not surfacey. It's not some sort of like magical or done up with a bow type thing that you came to give us, but you gave us something so deep, so profound, so rich, that for many it's hard to believe. But for those that you're saving, Lord, it is everlasting life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to believe. You would help us to offer you every part of our lives, to not hide anything from you. And I pray that somehow your good news, your gospel, your love would penetrate deeper into our souls, Lord. And I do pray you would teach us, Lord, Teach us how to use the hurts and the scars and the pains to bring you glory. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.